This is IT Visionaries, your number one source for actionable insights and exclusive interviews with CIOs, CTOs, and CISOs, and many more. I'm your host, Albert Chow, a former CIO, former sales VP, and now podcast host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today I have a special guest. His name is Indu Kerry, and he is the SVP of Engineering and General Manager of Hybrid Cloud Infrastructure at a company called Nutanix. If you've not heard of it, you're about to learn all about it. Indu, welcome to the show. Thank you, Albert. Great to be here. Listen, for our audience that doesn't know what Nutanix, let's start there. What is Nutanix, and what does it do? I'll answer that in two different ways, Albert. The first one, in terms of what we do, We are really trying to make cloud adoption and specifically hybrid multi-cloud adoption easy for enterprise customers. That's what we really do. Now that fits into an overall theme that we have, which is to make enterprise IT simpler. You know, we're in 2023, the technology industry has been around for the better part of 70 years. And even today, you will see that there's a big difference between how easy consumer technology is versus how challenging enterprise infrastructure and technology can be. And from the very early days of adoption and inception at Nutanix, we have really believed that enterprise IT can be made simpler and easier. And the first 10 years of our existence, it was all around this new architecture that we brought into market called HCI, And for the second decade of our existence, we are focused on making hybrid multi-cloud adoption easy and simple. Yeah, let's start with that problem because I think that is one worth diving into because I think right now, if you, whether you're in cloud native or, you know, like a cloud native startup or you're at an enterprise company trying to transform, you're probably encountering some of the problems which you you, you go to solve. And uh, I'm going to paint a quick picture for everybody. Uh, when you're setting up your AWS, AWS instance and you wanted to talk to GCP, maybe you're talking to a data center, you're going to go through three different software products. They're all going to be cumbersome. They're going to have a thousand options. Um, then if you're going to integrate them, you might need like like an Ansible or a Terraform, and that's going to be a command line interface. So if you don't know how to use that, like that tool is basically useless. You'll get a download, a script package, and you'll the script seller will say, hey, this is plug and play. Just click go. You click go, nothing happens. <laughs> or not the right thing happens. And each tool has its own permissions. There's intermediary tools that kind of almost help flow the data between these environments. And it is what Indu is describing and if I, maybe I'm doing a good, hopefully I'm doing a good job. Maybe I'm doing a bad job, but it gets annoying because you basically have to know how to do everything just to make it talk. You know, Albert, that's spot on. Um, you know, I think it was Thomas Watson who said like 50 years ago that the world needs five computers. <laughs> and in a way we are there, right? That's all Amazon <laughs> and Azure and GCP and maybe yeah. a couple others. And that's the good news in a way. <laughs> The bad news is they're all different from each other. That's right. And if you're fortunate enough to be in Netflix and live only in the cloud, even then, to your point, we have to navigate the multi-cloud complexity. Each of these clouds, each of these sort of global computers, if you will, is just a little bit different from each other, right? And so if you have a bunch of Microsoft workloads, .NET workloads, Azure is really well suited for you. If you're doing a lot of analytics, GCP is probably a good bet for you. If you're in the world of open source and databases, and if you're doing uh, you know, a lot of Linux and all of that, then Amazon is a great option for you. And every organization ends up having a mix of these different things. And so even if you were born in the cloud, you have to deal with this complexity. That's right. Now, if you're not born in the cloud, which is 95 95- <laughs> plus percent of enterprises. That's right. You have this wonderful situation where cloud is the right place to be for innovation. All that innovation depends on stuff you already built in the last 40, 50, 30, 20 years. But all of that stuff is on-prem and the innovation needs to happen in the cloud. And that's the problem. And that's the heart of what I think a lot of enterprises are struggling with. Yeah. And I want to add an extra layer, even if you were dedicated to a cloud, which I don't think anyone is anymore. Um, you still have the problem or it's not a problem or <laughs> I think it's a problem 
that the cloud service providers are always in a race. They're in a race against each other. So they're always launching new services all the time. And so no matter what services you've already selected, there's new services on top. I think every time I went to reInvent, I would get a list of things that they launched that, and it'd be like 40 things. Like, here's 40 new things you can learn about. <laughs> I literally just came back from reInvent. This actually goes yeah. to the point that, you know, there are five computers and each computer keeps evolving, right? You're yeah. absolutely right. Now, I think that um, that particular issue, you can actually uh, split it into two layers, right? Yeah. There is infrastructure level services, which I would say are relatively portable. So if all you're doing in a public cloud is consuming storage and networking and compute and a CDN, then you can actually move that stuff around pretty quickly. Although uh, the one thing to keep in mind is with regard to data, uh, you have to almost think of public cloud as Hotel California. It's easy to move stuff in, but moving stuff out, you need to be very, very intentional about it. And you need to plan for that. The real challenge starts to happen when you use platform level services. So if you're using the managed database service, if you're using queuing, if you're using message bus, if you're using sort of higher layer or or a data warehouse service. At that point, you really have a choice. You either are making a conscious decision to be in that public cloud provider for pretty much a long time, or you have to build in optionality so that in some time in the future, either you can do what David uh, Heimer Hansen did, which is just pull out of AWS entirely and move on-prem, or you might want to move to a different public cloud. Mm. And you can't decide those things in the spot of the moment. You really have to plan for that. And you have to decide for that optionality the day that you decide to start doing your innovation. And that's really the news, if you will, for a lot of public cloud adoption, uh, which is organizations have rushed in there in many cases. And now they find themselves <laughs> in a position where there is no clear exit strategy, even if the costs are not where they want them to be. That is something that used to come up all the time when I would go to these uh, the different conferences is people talking about, hey, I thought this was going to be less expensive. And then they get hit with, oh, well, it depends. Like if you're moving constantly data between in and out of clouds and different services, you're just getting hit with, you already said it, like egress fees each time. So if you're using... If you're you hybrid cloud data from point A to B and bring it back to deliver it to customer at C... Egress nonstop. <laughs> so, so I'll give you an analogy, right? Let's say that you, let's say that your plan was to drive a car for the next seven years, but you okay. didn't know what kind of car you wanted. Mm-hmm. Would you rent a new car every day for the next seven years? No. There you go. But would it make sense for you to rent a new car? I don't know. Every thirty days, every I mean, for the next 30, 45 days, like. Try out the McLaren, try out the, uh, whatever, the Lamborghini, the Maserati, the Toyota Camry. Try out every single one of them. And at the end of 45 days, decide which one you want and then buy it. And public cloud adoption is a little bit like that, right? It's the perfect place for innovation. You have a plethora of services available. They're available through automation. They're available at the drop of a hat. And if I'm going to go build out a whole new set of things that I'm unsure about what that adoption is going to be, it is the best place to go do your experimentation. There you go. But once I know what's working, it's like renting the Prius every day for six and a half years after you know that the Prius is a car that you love. (laughs) And it's just much easier to go buy it, right? And much much more affordable. And so I think that's a movie that's going to play out, which really comes back to the optionality conversation we we're just having. If you haven't built in that optionality to your innovation and your experimentation, you are going to be stuck with renting your Prius every day for the next seven years. But if you have built in that optionality, if you know what your data that needs to be moved out somewhere else, and if you know, if you built the right automation, then you're in a very different place. Now, the other part of this is that a lot of the innovation actually depends on being able to leverage functionality that was already built over the years. Yeah. Which, if you remember, is not in the public cloud yet. It's on-prem. It's on-prem. There you go. And so you need to find a way to make that available as close to the innovation as possible without spending five years doing that. Let's hit on that because when I think about 
when people talk about innovation, technology, shifts in society, a lot of times I always feel like the focus is so much on software. And I agree, software enables and helps with just about everything. But for a lot of people, the core services that they love, enjoy, depend on are physical. So physical companies doing physical things that cannot be replaced by software. You need to drive. You need vehicles. You need transportation. You need medicine. You need all these different things manufactured. Like we benefit everything in my house was manufactured somewhere. I would benefit if every one of these companies could figure it out and make better products and services that last longer. You know what I mean? Like yep. our lives depend on physical things. Yep. And most of the innovation happens in the software layer. It of course trickles down to the physical layer. Give us an idea. If I'm a company and I want all companies to do this, especially the travel industry is one I depend on the most. I use that as my example all the time. Give us an idea of how your product, what new in your services, how Nutanix is helping companies get there to take advantage of these cloud installations, because we kind of identified the challenges. Talk about how can it get easier? Because you're absolutely right. We've had multiple consultants on this show over and over again tell us that the technology is probably there to solve some of the most critical problems, but it's either a skill or a will problem now. Meaning if you're a leader in a company, you don't have enough will to invest in the skill to build it, yeah. or um, you don't have you, you, your people, you don't have enough people that can do it. Um, either way, they we've heard over and over again that it's a will or skill or possibly both problem right now, but capability technology has ascended to a point where a lot of enterprise customers aren't taking advantage of it because they haven't figured out how to you know, take that bridge, that next step. Talk about how Nutanix helps that company get there. I will, but I'll, let me again break it down into a couple of steps, right? Yeah. So even though we live in a physical world, it's really important to recognize that elements of that physical world are becoming more and more intelligent. Yeah. Whether it's the edge, whether it's instrumentation, whether it's software that's running, whether the physical item is being managed from, let's say, a control plane that might reside in a different location, right? Okay. And so one of the first things that IT organizations need to realize is that, and I think Mark Andreessen said this years and years ago, software is eating the world. And a big part of that is the increasing intelligence of infrastructure and physical things, whether it's your whether it's the car that you drive, whether it's the checkout counter at a sort of location where fraud detection happens automatically. Those are the sorts of things. So the 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 real world itself, right, is becoming more instrumented, more managed, more observable, all of which feeds into sort of the next part of the argument. The moment you have that sort of instrumentation, what you need is software, tooling, and automation that allows you to control and manage the physical world to get the most out of it, mm. which really comes down to automation, increasing productivity. You know, gone are the days where users are willing to tolerate a server taking six more months to provision, right? The cloud changed that. If we need more hardware to go test something out, we expect to have a VM appear or a container appear in a matter of minutes. That's the new expectation. And so when you have this increasing sort of sophistication of the real-world physical infrastructure, and then you have processes and tooling that drives that infrastructure, you need to be able to innovate as quickly as possible to find out what is the right way to get the most out of this new physical infrastructure. This is where innovation becomes really central. And as we talked about before, the cloud is actually a really good place to do that innovation as long as you have people that are able to start working on cloud platforms really quickly. If it takes you, you know, nine months to come up to speed on you know, a particular cloud platform, you've lost nine months, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. There is a skill and a will shortage in many places. The will comes because in some instances, you know, there is a little bit of fear or maybe even anxiety about adoption of the public cloud in terms of what does that mean for the existing sort of teams that deal with physical on-prem infrastructure? Does it mean that they don't have a role anymore? The skill gap obviously comes from public clouds are different. 
They're very different from how people have been used to doing things. There's a lot more automation. There's a lot more API-driven management, API-driven activities. Um, and if you have not been used to that, it's, it's a new thing for you, right? But where we help, where Nutanix helps, is by, first of all, making a lot of the infrastructure essentially transparent mm. to where the application runs. So one of the things that we launched earlier this year, and I know you don't want a product pitch, but the thing that we have done, this is sort of part of making enterprise IT simple, right? For years and years and years, we have had um, an approach of doing everything software-defined infrastructure. So we have software-defined storage, software-defined networking, software-defined management, software-defined compute. And the same stat that our customers are used to running on-prem runs on the public cloud platforms like AWS and Azure, which means that I can get productive on a public cloud platform without understanding all the details or the nitty-gritty ways of doing it on a specific public cloud. And now I can transfer that knowledge from one public cloud to another. So if I'm building a new application, I need to learn only one way of doing that, which is you know, with the Nutanix APIs and with our infrastructure underlined. And that same application will then run on the public cloud, whether it's from AWS or from Azure, mm. or in the future on other public clouds. So that dramatically lowers the bar for the amount of effort a developer has to put in to be productive, which means it makes them more productive and allows them to move faster and allows them to innovate faster. The number of applications that are going to be built in the next five years is going to be more than the number of applications that were built in the last 40. Wait, restate, restate your uh, fact. <laughs> the number of applications that are going to be built in the next five years is going to be more than what were built in the last 40. Mm. And so people are going to have to be way more productive. Developers are going to have to be way more productive. IT has got to be way more productive than we've ever been. And we can do that as long as we have the right abstraction on top of the underlying public cloud platforms that allows developers and IT organizations to innovate. And as they innovate and build greater automation and business processes, right, it has a direct impact on the physical infrastructure, which is also intelligent, which was your original question. Let yeah. me make all this tangible for a second, right? Because this is all great theory, right? Yeah. One of the most interesting hybrid multi-cloud use cases right now is AI. Of course. And when you think about how AI will end up being used in the enterprise, there are really three distinct phases. There's a phase where you have to train a foundational model. And it turns out that the only place we can really do that, given the amount of data and given the amount of compute that's needed, is in the public cloud. Those are the only places where you have the GPUs that you need, the scale that you need, the amount of public data that you need. The creation of the foundational models only really happens in the public cloud. But the foundational models are not perfectly suited to your business because they're trained in the same data that everybody else has. So you then need to go through a step where the foundational models are refined and augmented with data that is specific to your enterprise and that has to be done in your data center within your four walls. Because the moment that data leads your enterprise and the moment that data ends up in the public cloud or in the public training spaces, you lost control of the data. So you have a foundational model that's in the public cloud. You have the refinement and the augmentation that happens in your data center that creates a better model. And the last step is you take that and you apply inferencing at the edge. Now, what does the edge look like? The edge might be an oil platform where you made decisions about you know, where your best oil source might be. It might be a checkout counter in an automated store where based on the items that you're carrying, somebody is able to determine, the system is able to determine automatically what you should be charged for. And so that becomes an end-to-end -end use case where by having a common infrastructure that scales all the way from the edge to the data center, to the public cloud, on the same set of underlying APIs, for example, you're able to drive productivity 
And you're really able to drive adoption of AI in a way that wasn't possible before. And that's really exciting. Given that use case, I, first of all, 100% agree. I want to make sure our our audience can understand. So Nutanix is, you mentioned that abstraction layer, is the, is the software or layers of software, APIs, that make it easy to move data from, I don't want to say any system because there's always going to be, but make from system A to system B seamlessly so that you can simply learn Hopefully, few, you know, you have to learn fewer systems so that you can connect up what you need to connect to take best advantage, for example, of public cloud services that are going to help power your AI models. Is that a, the best way to phrase what Nutanix does for customers? I think that's a wonderful way to phrase it. I would maybe split it into two parts. We let okay. you run your applications anywhere and move them anywhere. Gotcha. And then the really hard part of what we do is making sure the data that you need for those applications is available anywhere. There you go. Data has gravity, right? So if I'm building an application that's totally stateless, that, you know, doesn't, like if I'm building a weekend, you know, my, uh, I know play date scheduling app, it goes down, the data isn't there, who cares, right? But if I'm building an enterprise app, the data that I need for the application to function right needs to be available wherever the application is. And it's much harder to move the data than to move the application. Yeah. And so the hard part of what we do, um, and you know, the, back in the late 90s, there used to be this uh, billboard, I forget the name of the company, but um, they said what we, they had all these equations and there was a sign on the right that said, what we do is really rotlet science, right? And so I think the hard part of what we do, I think the rotlet science part of what we do is the making sure that data movement and data availability is built into this fabric, into this platform, that runs anywhere you want so that data-intensive, mission-critical enterprise applications can be developed on this platform once and they can run anywhere. You know, I like to use this example in all of our episodes because it's something that everyone understands and everyone's been affected by. But I always use airline travel as you will see firsthand when a computer goes down, <laughs> how big of a deal it can be. Yep. Uh, we're, I believe, approximately one year, because I saw it back in the news again of the Southwest meltdown that happened yep. last Christmas. And when it was revealed that the routing trees for pilots and crew was not done via software, it was done via phone call. You had to call into the call center. The call centers went down. So you're basically, you know, like you said, so in, a, in an ideal software world, Indus, you know, at gate B5, the plane's not available. They say, hey, go fly B7 or something like that. Like they figure yep. out a, like a plane that you understand that you have enough hours for and training digitally, send you your orders digitally, send the crew's orders digitally, and they can try to get as more planes in the air. This call center failure caused them basically to not be able to fly, <laughs> which was crazy. Give us an idea of what it, you know, that's, I think a great example of what you said, like, hey, data, your application data is where it is. Moving that's probably really hard, but to leverage that smart service, yep. you got to be able to move that. And you need to make sure that the, the data is, the movement of the data is planned before the bad thing happens. That's right. <laughs> that's the, that's the preparation, right? So yeah. in, the, in that example that you, that you had, right, even if all the primary systems went down, if you had high availability and DR baked into the application, there you go. You would have been doing data replication from one place to another. And you would have had pretty much, maybe not the last five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes worth of scheduling data, but everything before that, right? You would have had in place. And instead of going back, you know, 50 years, we'd have, we'd have gone back maybe just a, a day or two. Right. Yeah. In terms of the ability to keep the business running. Yeah. And here's the hard part, right? You can't plan for a disaster or high availability after the disaster has struck. <laughs> you need to do that upfront. And that's why the data movement and data planning and data availability is such an important aspect. No doubt about it. I remember because I used to work for a company that did network and we would talk about how you need different lines to make sure you have high availability and all this. And, and there was always companies that would say like, hey, we're, you know, that's not our concern right now. But then watch something bad happen. And then they call you up right away. <laughs> reality, like is you said, a, reality is you know, like, a really good teacher. 
That's right. That's right. Especially like you said, a critical core service. Like if you're yeah. in travel, the travel industry, healthcare industry, like these are core services that people really, if you think about it, they can't be without the utilities industry. They can't be without for like 20 minutes sometimes, like 20 minutes <laughs> seems like an eternity, right? Where if it's just a chat app, you know, maybe it's okay. I don't know, <laughs> but yeah, it's and crazy again, to depends on what you're using the chat app for, right? If you're using the chat app to actually do trading or dispatch or something like that, I mean, people actually use WhatsApp as a very sort of mission critical app sometimes, right? That is I think true. You're in, a, you're in a totally different place. I think we've just gotten used to the the web has changed. I think how we experience the world, right? The yeah. internet has changed. We don't have the patience we did twenty years ago. You're not willing to wait for thirty minutes for a phone call. You want what you want now. And when something isn't available, like just imagine a scenario where your bank statement or bank balance isn't available for thirty minutes. You'll have you'll have it's chaos. Weird. You'll have no, chaos. No, it's weird, right? It's, it, it feels like you've lost your money. Yeah, that's exactly how it feels like. <laughs> it's like, do, do I have any money left? Yeah. Did, you, did you just take all my money? Because funny you mentioned that because um, when the run on FTX happened last year, I yeah. had F money in FTX. And I remember I was like, I got to get in and move it, move it, move it. And then I remember that what that felt like to like click, you know, log yep. in and just just spinning, just yep. spinning. Yep. I'm like, it's and I knew it's gone. They're never going to let me in. That's gone. <laughs> Rumble yeah, the bank is I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, yeah. Luckily, it was $700. So in the end of the day, at the end of so my it life. Was, it wasn't, um, you, you can rest easy without that. I can rest easier. Yeah. Like it's just 700 bucks. But yeah, I, I, I mean, will I see a dollar of it back? Probably not. But <laughs> but it makes the point about high availability, right? And yeah. why, the especially with all the innovation that we're going to see and as they become sort of consumer grade in terms of adoption, you really need to deliver high availability all the time. And the data availability is the cornerstone on top of which application availability rests. You know, it's interesting you mentioned this because I think it's there's a transition phase we're in right now where I really do feel like it's quite noticeable which uh, legacy companies are adopting faster than others because you can see like the feature releases seemingly happen and then other industries or comparable industries or competitors not have these features and it makes you feel like what is happening um, i'll use some examples why do i have to go to a check-in counter for car rental because some car companies have figured this out and like in my app it tells me what stall my car's in it already knows who i am i've rented there before it has all my information all i need to do is show is my id to the gate agent who does physically check the car yep matches the the order or the, the 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 purchase or the rental agreement and they say oh yep you're into this is the car that you got check you're on your way others are like you got to get to the gate and that person at the counter has to look you up and yeah. you're like what is happening um i used my example and i i feel like it's much more noticeable in the travel industry than anywhere else but i used this example before about how delta was able to provide my bag claim with my ticket so that I knew my bags were on the plane, I want to say almost two years before American did it. Mm -hmm. And so someone said to me, and I, it was a consultant, technical consultant we've had on our show. They said, I guarantee you American saw that and thought it was a good idea. But the problem was an infrastructure problem. They had to have had something missing where they couldn't have implemented it. Because to us, we see that as easy. And he was saying, oh, but I'm telling you, it's a huge challenge to, <laughs> to integrate a system that's not, you know, like you said, not ready for cloud information or whatever the case may be. He's like, that's a huge project. And I was like, oh, so that's why it took so long. Yeah, I would say infrastructure definitely plays into it, which is why a lot of innovation, the cloud is the logical place for that. As long as the capabilities that you depend on are also available and they have to be available through things like APIs, right? Because if your existing apps are silos or they don't have clear interfaces or if they're not easy to get to, then to your point, they're not useful. Yeah. I'll bet you there's a badge tracking system in every airline and it was probably built in the last 30 years and it may or may not have modern APIs on top of it, right? And so if you were able to layer that modern API on top of your badge handling system, then you can build this tracking gap on a public cloud as a modern containerized app really fast. Yeah. But if this was never, if this doesn't even have APIs on it. Yeah. 
just then, like, let's say that the only way that you have access to it is you sit in front of the green terminal and you have to type in some badly tracking code number, like an eight-digit thing, to get your status with no APIs attached to it. Then, of course, you will be in a different world, right? And so an important part of this modernization is layering APIs on top of what you already have. And that's really part of the lift and shift process. But then being able to innovate as quickly as possible. You know, I run a large engineering team. And one of the things that people always ask me is, how do you measure developer productivity? There are like 17,000 million measures, <laughs> right? And yeah. I tell you, the simplest way to measure developer productivity is cycle time. Okay. Which is from the time somebody has an idea to the time that I can put it in production. How long does it take? Ah. A great organization that is working really, really well can reduce that to a matter of weeks. And that's what innovation is all about. Yeah. Right? On the other hand, if you have to go through like a, you know, Soviet-style five-year planning process to go <laughs> get your app produ into production by the end of, you know, the 20s, right? You're in a very different place, right? And you're absolutely right. When you have a service, for example, in an industry that's a relative commodity, at the end of the day, I mean, if I'm flying from place A to place B, I have choices, right? Uh, the seat isn't the one that's driving my choice. It's all the things around the seat, right? Do I lose my bags? Do I get, uh, do my flights run on time? Does, yeah. Do I miss my connections? If I miss a connection, am I rerouted quickly enough? Am yeah. I kept up to date? Does my mobile app work, right? And all of that is, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, software that is that impacts real-world physical infrastructure in ways that we hadn't even thought about. And the one with the better experience, the one with the better software, the one with the better innovation will win. That's right. But to do that, they have to be able to innovate. And for that, they need to really modernize their existing applications so that they can innovate really, really fast. Yeah. Let's get back to that one thing that you were talking about. You mentioned earlier in the conversation about how enterprises long not had that. Um, and, and I'm paraphrasing now, but like, like consumer, like you, for example, you know what I mean? Like consumer apps, wholly focus on user experience, making it as easy as possible. You know, it's like, they're like on a mission to yep. not make you click anything. Right. You know, yep. you get order, or for example, ordering a car on your phone, they try to make it as easy as possible. Right. One button click yep. every company strives for this simplicity. You mentioned earlier, enterprise IT doesn't really do that, <laughs> mainly because they typically have to answer, in my opinion, to every request scenario situation. But what about this? And you know, then they just add it. And it seems like, you know how great consumer apps, uh, you'll hear different uh, product people talk about, it's what you say no to that makes it great. And then I feel like enterprise engineers like, yes, <laughs> every, every company, yes, 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 yes. Talk about that transition or that goal of yours to simplify that so that it's easier, so that more people can use it. How do you go about taking on that mission because of what I said earlier, which is the enterprise software developers have to there's so many use cases they're accounting for. So many. They're, like, the amount of use cases they are accounting for is, 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 is really high. <laughs> so, Albert, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to believe. And I will challenge you to go look up the data on this and convince, you, convince yourself that what I'm telling you is actually the truth. Okay? Okay. What do you think our NPS is as a company for new tenants? I'll tell you. So I'll give you a hint. I would say it's it, under seven. I would assume it's under seven because you're enterprise, but you're going to tell me it's higher. <laughs> it's 90. Nine zero. Damn. And one of uh, the players that we compete with, they were just acquired. The acquirer's NPS is minus seven. <laughs> okay. For anyone now, who's not familiar with NPSs, uh, the. Uh, or depending on what scale you are, in this case, 100, 100 would be a perfect score. Every single person would recommend you to another person. Yep. What Indu is saying is 90%, 90 out of 100 customers would would, would vocally recommend uh, Nutanix to their peers. And then some of the... <laughs> <laughs> some of the uh in some of the industry competitors would call their friend twice to tell them that they don't do it 
<laughs> NPS can be minus 102. And, there are, yeah. and especially in the world of enterprise software, you have a lot of companies with, in, the, in, in that range, right? Yeah, yeah. They'll call, they'll call each person twice. Hey, don't buy it. <laughs> Let me unpack that for you, right? How much do you think about upgrading your iPhone? I'm assuming you have an iPhone. I actually do not. I'm one of the Android holdouts, but uh, how often do I think about upgrading it? I have probably every two to three years. Okay, but how often do you upgrade the operating system? Oh, as they're available. And how long does it take you? Oh, I think zero time about it because I have, um, I have it on auto update. There you go, right? <laughs> so our core platform, Nutanix Cloud Infrastructure. So remember what I told you about software-defined everything, software-defined storage, software-defined networking, software-defined... Uh, compute, software-defined management. We allow and enable our customers to do what's called a one-click in-place upgrade. Mm. So if you're running, let's just say, version 6.5 of our operating system, you can go to your cluster, you can basically do a one-click upgrade, and you'll be able to upgrade to the next available version. Now, that sounds something incredibly trivial, but just think about everything that goes into that. You don't have to blow out the data that you had in the old version. You don't have to bring up an entire new system in parallel while you're doing the upgrade from one version to the other. You don't have to shut your entire application down. You basically do a rolling upgrade of a cluster through one node at a time, through automation, from one version to the other. And that's just a foundational example of why we have such a high NPS. And this thing works. And so that makes IT administrators' jobs so much easier. They don't have to babysit the upgrade process. And we surround that with incredible support. If you go look back at uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, I think there is a post from one of our customers who apparently was, went out on vacation. And uh, they went on vacation. They were out of communication window for some period of time. Of course, when they went on vacation, I think one of the hard drives or one of the disk drives failed. And so the system called home. It was monitored by somebody on our side. We shipped out a drive. And all of that happened over a 17-hour period. And when they opened their notifications, they saw that the drive had failed, that we had found out about it, that we had shipped out a spare. The spare was already on site and that the team had already replaced it. And so they didn't feel any of the trauma of having to figure all this out while you're on vacation. Yeah. Right? And it just happened for them, Right? And that sounds so simple, but doing that again and again and again is, is an example of how to make enterprise IT simpler. The common operations, the day two operations, the upgrades, the patch management, the uh, moving from one version to another, like you just want to make that on the infrastructure side so people don't have to think about it, right? And it takes an enormous amount of effort behind the scenes to make that happen. You know, as you were just talking about it, it gave me back um, horror, horror, horrific visions of back when I was building a software company or with my, my with my partners and building a software company, and we were a social media management system, and we relied very heavily on the APIs of the social platforms, you know, Meta, then Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all that stuff. But they would update their APIs and kind of not tell you about it, and then so then my core software product would break. And so if you're telling me you're delivering, uh, you know, I call it passive, basically passive or in the background software updates, rolling batches, like you said, in clusters so that, because at first when you said, I just give it to you, I was like, wait a second, but my phone does shut down to to install, right? So you're rolling it through. And so then there's no shutdown. And then I was thinking, because immediately my my mind just raced back to that horrific moment in time. It's like, oh shoot, all that backwards compatibility, they must engineer for that. They have to. We absolutely. must 100%. 100%. So we have this, this API families, right? Yeah. And now, now keep in mind, you do have to change API families, right? So you can't yeah. carry the same API forever. But we are incredibly intentional about how we change that. 
And again, customers stay for a long time on a particular version. And then when they move, we go out of our way to make sure that that whole process is as simple as possible. Now, I'll give you another example, which really speaks to the DNA of the company. I don't know if you're ever in the storage administration business, right? If you've never been, it's it's a business you don't want to be in. <laughs> it's, it's a hard business. It's a hard business. Yeah. So the origin story of Nutanix was this new architecture called HCI, where compute storage and networking were all baked into the same system. And if you remember, before HCI happened, you had like storage verticals, compute verticals, networking verticals with separate administrations, separate folks who were responsible for all of that, right? The thing that we made easy, which led to sort of the growth of the company in the early days, was we realized, first of all, that a server also has storage. But more importantly, what we realized was that you could administer storage the way that you can administer servers. So instead of having, for example, to learn about things like LUNs and how do I add one byte to a one petabyte storage array and fiddling out fiber channel and all that thing, all of that, the way that you add one byte to a cluster is you add one more server and it gets added to the cluster and boom, you're done. And so that simplification of how you manage infrastructure, what we used to call making the mere mortal server admin, being able to manage storage, right, was one of the earliest examples of how we made things easy and simple for the enterprise. And that DNA has carried us through even now as we think about hybrid multi-cloud. And yes, there are only five computers, but they're all different from each other. The focus that we have is how can we provide as consistent and a seamless experience between the private cloud, the edge, and the public cloud platforms so that developers and IT administrators can really focus on the innovation and leave the boring things <laughs> to people like us. And we are okay with that, right? I mean, the boring, we actually get excited by the boring stuff. But if you do that consistently, you really end up delivering a lot of value for our customers. 100%. I mean, whenever I talk to someone who needs an analogy, it's like you want the people, like in companies like Nutanix or infrastructure in general is like the frame of your house. You really only want to invest in it one time. Like, why would you ever want to think about your frame every day? Like, that'd be terrible. You couldn't do anything. Yep. <laughs> right. like, oh, this That's wall right. fell. That's right. That wall fell. <laughs> that, that's yep. no good. You know, on the on the current homepage of Nutanix, it says the platform for your AI success. And you mentioned it earlier because there's a huge demand. And we don't even call it this shift. It's like the shift already happened. The de- It's just demand now. Everyone wants AI enabled, AI empowered. You mentioned earlier in your conversations about, hey, they want AI, but they're also going to want that data private. Yep. Now, we talked with some of our previous guests about some like the common use cases of why it has to be private. Um a good example is like, uh, let's use an ultra competitive market, which is grocery stores. Every single grocery store has data on the product blends of and the stocking requirements on the sales throughput yeah. because grocery stores only drop like 2% to the bottom line. You yeah. know, it's a crazy small number, yeah. right? So if I figure something out, I really don't want... <laughs> Nutanix or the clouds to let that know, but my competitors know what that is because yeah. my advantage is going to only be for so small, but I need to squeeze every drop of margin there is while I can. I'll, I'll give you another one. Imagine yeah. you want to, you want to train a fraud prevention model. Oh yeah. Right. I don't want to give out all my data uh, of that no. used either for security purposes or even regulatory reasons. Right. I'm not going to be able to give out all the data. I need to take something that's available in the public domain, perhaps, because that does shorten my overall ramp time. But then I need to train the data set and I need to keep the data set firmly under my control, right? Um, and that's why you really need something that allows you to get up and running on this um, refinement and augmentation use cases um, as quickly as possible. So when you think about the that that pitch that Nutanix is making, that platform for your AI success, where you know you mentioned the data, the port of I call it portability, but the portability compatibility as well as the security and privacy. Yep. How else are you helping companies go after those models? Because you're absolutely right. Like every there is, it feels like 
We cannot have a guest. We just, uh, we have not. Every guest, well, no matter where they're from, whether they're from the uh, software side, whether they're from physical product side, right? The CIO of like a car company still is like, I need AI. It's like, yeah. I, I thought you made cars. Like, nope, I can use AI for manufacturing, for safety, for engineering, for a yeah. lot of things. Yeah. You know, the car is the final product. <laughs> so there are two very tangible ways that we're doing that. The the foundational model training will happen in the public cloud and that will continue to happen in the public cloud for the foreseeable future. So that's something that we don't, we're not really touching. But taking those foundational models, standing up your internal systems as quickly as possible so that you can take those foundational models, refine them, augment them with your data. That's the first problem that we are really solving uh, for our customers. And the second one is taking those refined models and doing inferencing. And so the, the platforms that do, or the systems that do the inferencing and the training in the data center and the refinement and the augmentation in the data center are one and the same, which allows you to move quickly between those phases. It allows you to build automation. It allows you to do all the things that there is a lot of friction if you don't have this sort of a consistent experience. And that's really the value proposition of the GPT in a box system that we introduced earlier this year. Very cool. You know, everyone wants to know from different thought leaders, like, what do you think is, what, what's the future look like? And that's what everyone always wants to know. What's the future look like? Give us some predictions for, your, for yourself for 2024. I, I always say the next year is going to look like this year because <laughs> I feel like things don't change year to year. But in decades, they change a ton. Do you see anything in your in your opinion? Do you see something transformative happening in the next year, or do you see it taking a little bit longer? And whatever it is, share with us. What do you, how do you see our world shifting? Um, let's say whether it's one, five, or ten years. Tell me something that you think is going to happen. I'll give you maybe a couple bookends, right? Yeah. Um, we do this thing called the Enterprise Cloud Index Survey. Yep. where we survey uh, both our customers and sort of users more broadly. Last year, 12% of our respondents said they were planning to repatriate a workload in the next 12 months. That number this year was 43%. And so without even taking a whole lot of risk, I can say that in 2024, we're going to have a lot more conversations about data or, or application repatriation in terms of moving things out of the public cloud, into other public clouds, on-prem, all of that, right? I think that's just where we are headed. That's your that's your car analogy from earlier. They've tried it out. Now they're ready. Now they're ready to sort of <laughs> commit, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And the 10-year question is really interesting. And I'll tell you, as a community, we always overestimate the short-term impact and underestimate the long-term impact of any shift. Yeah. I think AI is going to be really transformational. And it's going to be in a way that we haven't even thought about. I actually think AI safety is going to end up being a really big issue. Mm. And if you look at sort of the drama of open AI that played out in the last couple of weeks, right? I think it's just Lexington encountered, if you will. Mm -hmm. I think the whole battle of, you know, when is a model appropriate to be used? How do you measure the safety of a model? What can you really use a model for? Is it age appropriate? Is it situational appropriate? Is it something that can be used only on five days of the week and not on the weekends? Like, we are going to be surrounded by models. There is no question about it. And models are going to be making decisions about us. Let's not, let's not, let's not doubt that for a second. Oh, yeah. I think the question ends up being, in a 10-year time frame, what do you have that allows us to understand how safe these models are, how explainable these models are, how consistent these models are. And I think that's going to be a really big deal to try to figure that out. It's interesting you said that because it, it plays on a couple of things that different people have said on the show again. Uh, one, models are based on data, but how does it know the data it's gotten is accurate? There was that article earlier in the year where OpenAI, it was revealed that ChatGPT, for example, was less accurate in solving math problems than it was when it first started, yeah. which means it's gotten in the, you know, to the homework of my kids. It's <laughs> somewhere it learned that two plus two is five and it just doesn't know the difference. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. well, if that's true, then I'm going to apply it to all this. Yeah. So what is real? 
this what is real and what is accurate because you can say you got to feed it information it's like but who wrote the information that's right what's in it how does it know what Which is actually comes to the heart of explainability like yeah. how do i know in this case two plus two plus five right yeah and can i explain that in a way that doesn't just restate the answer right and yeah. more fundamentally is it right or wrong right yeah, exactly. And then the next thing that comes up is, and I think this will be in the next 10 years, this will, I don't know if it'll figure it out next year, but I think by the next 10 years, there'll be a new industry we never thought really about, which is data verification, data veracity. People are going to try to, because there's going to be so much fake info or poor information being circulated now. Cause it's like, look, look at Gen AI. Is that image real or not? Yep. Is that Photoshopped or not? Yep. Most people, no clue. Yeah. And it's and we're just starting. It's going to yeah. get even better. I actually love that insight. I think, um, you know what I love about it is hopefully there'll be, uh, we'll come up with ways whereby we'll provide tools to end users like you and yeah. I to put sort of a stamp of approval on data that we created so that again, it goes back to traceability and verifiability. Yeah. Right. You know, there was this cartoon from the mid-90s, right? On the internet, nobody knows that you're a dog, right? And I think that whole model needs to be flipped on its head. If we really want to rebuild sort of trust on a social scale, we need to make sure that these systems and models that we're going to be surrounded by, there is some level of traceability that allows us to go trust the decisions that they're making. Yeah, that is equally as big of an industry, if not AI is in itself, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I yeah. feel like veracity because everyone's going to want, how do I yeah. verify I love that this? term actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I appreciate it, man. I got some kudos from a, from a genius in the game. <laughs> no, listen, you know something? Um, first of all, I think this was just an amazing conversation, Albert. Really thank you for your time and you made it easy. So kudos to you. Oh. Um, as I said, I'm an engineer by training and I'm, I'm a natural introvert. So thank you for making this as easy as you did and really enjoyed the time. Hey, no problem. Listen, you were a great guest and you had a lot of great insights. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy hearing what you had to say. If you want to learn more about Nutanix, of course, you can check them out. It's spelled N-U-T-A-N-I-X. Check the show notes. We'll link everything up. We're going to make sure everyone gets a chance to learn more if they want to. Indu, I want to say thank you again for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your insights. Thanks for sharing your examples as well. I always love it when um, our guests actually use tangible examples because sometimes they just talk. <laughs> tangible examples is what we all wanted because there's definitely people that have no clue about enterprise IT, but they, they know about these problems in the travel industry, health industry. You know, so that's perfect. Indu, it was awesome having you on the show. Thank you, Albert. Likewise. Likewise.